Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, we took a short break for Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday uh, and took a break from our study in 1 John. But now we're, we're returning back and picking up where we left off in 1 John chapter 2. We'll be looking at verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. In a moment, we'll read this passage. But there's a, a question that I want to ask you before we get to our passage today. The question is this, do you ever lack motivation in your life? Do you ever feel like you don't have motivation to do the things that you need to do? Maybe even this morning, you lacked a little motivation. We we went to the beach on Friday, and the car said it was 86 degrees outside. It was beautiful. And then I woke up this morning and it was 50-something, and the fog was so thick you could cut it with a knife. And I'll be honest with you, uh, I, as your pastor, wanted to stay in bed this morning. I lacked the motivation to some degree, but I, I knew that you all were counting on me to be here to preach to you, and so I got up and I came. I lack motivation maybe in a lot of ways. I know that I need to change my diet. It's no secret, but yesterday I lacked the motivation to say no to ice cream. Swirl soft serve, in fact, chocolate and vanilla together. I think what happens so oftentimes in my motivation is that I believe the pleasure that I'm going to get out of not doing something is better than the joy that I'm going to get doing something. I believe right now, because I've not had a heart attack, that fried chicken and ice cream is good. But if that were to happen to me, I may start to think that the consequences of my actions should motivate me to live differently. You see, sometimes I I think my motivation is backwards. But if we're honest with ourselves, couldn't we also admit that oftentimes we lack motivation in the Christian life? Oftentimes we believe that the lack of obedience, the sin that we're going to commit, is going to bring us more joy than living with the future in mind, what the benefits are of living a certain way. I think this has to do also with what we actually put our confidence in. I think part of the reason that my motivation is lacking is that I have put my confidence in the wrong things. And all too often, I've put my confidence in something that can't deliver in the way that I would hope it would. See, here's the the thesis for today's sermon. As sure as we are that Christ resurrected from the dead. Are, Are you sure of this today, brothers and sisters? We just spent the last two Sundays celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. As sure as you are that he is resurrected from the dead, we also must be just as sure that he will one day return to take his children home to heaven. Do, Do you believe this truth as well? That Jesus Christ is going to return for us his children and take us to heaven with him forever. As we await his return, we can do so with all the confidence and motivation that is needed to live a life for him. But first, you you must be convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that he will return one day for us, his children. And there's one other piece that we're going to get inside of this. None of this matters. The fact that he resurrected from the dead and the fact that he will return for his children, none of that matters if you are not a child of God. We're going to get to why that's significant in a moment. 
With all of this in your mind, I want to encourage you to stand for a reading from the Word of God, 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. It says, And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, if you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. This is a reading from the Word of God. You may be seated. I want to suggest to you today, as I already have in the introductory statements, that confidence in Christ motivates our lives. Confidence in Christ motivates our lives. In this particular passage, what, what we find right away in verse 28 is that John is anxiously anticipating, and he's encouraging us to do the same, to anxiously anticipate the appearance, the return of Jesus Christ. And I look forward to that day, don't you, amen? I look forward to the day when Jesus Christ returns and makes all things right. When Jesus Christ returns, there will be no more sin or pain or suffering. We will be free from both the effects of sin and the temptation to sin. And I can't wait for that day. But John here reminds us that Jesus Christ is going to return, that He will return. He will appear, both in verse 28 and in chapter 3, verse 2. This is a, a throwback to chapter 2, verse 19. It's a reminder that those who continue with the Lord will be rewarded when He appears, and those who have not continued with the Lord, those who do not believe in Him, those who are not motivated by Him, will have a much different response than, than those of us who have followed after Christ when He appears. Because John, throughout the book here so far, his first epistle, has painted two very distinct categories, those who love and follow God and those who do not. Those who worship God and have experienced His love and those who follow the ways of the devil. In fact, he goes so far in the previous verses to divide the, the categories between Christ followers and those who are antichrists. And when Christ appears, those two categories will have totally different responses to the return of Jesus Christ, this text tells us. One thing that, that also John emphasizes here and is emphasized all throughout the, the New Testament. There is an anticipation that Christ would re, could return at any moment. No one actually knows when Christ is going to return. So this knowledge alone should change the way that we think about our lives. We should be living as if this moment is the moment in which Christ returns, because it could be. He could appear at any moment. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews actually communicates this as well also. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. He says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for Him, or eagerly waiting for Him. Again, just as much as you are convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you must be convinced that He will return. This is foundational for the way in which we live. James also says in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. 
you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We must believe this, brothers and sisters, and we must live as if this is true. Because if we live as if Christ's second coming can happen at any moment, there can be a confidence that we have that's actually born out of two things in anticipation of His return. You can be confident that when Jesus Christ returns, that for those of us who will believe, it will be a great and glorious day. But this confidence must be placed in the right place. And the place that it must be placed is in Christ. Because unlike many of the places that I place my confidence, I'm trying to say place and place as many times as I can. Because this is something that we're actively choosing to do. You're actively choosing constantly to put your hope, your confidence in something. And like I said before, most of the places that I put my confidence cannot deliver on the promises that it makes. But, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ can. He is worthy of your confidence because He can deliver. But our confidence in His return is essentially, according to this passage, born out of two things. First, obedience. That there's this abiding that we've talked about multiple times in this passage already, this remaining in Christ that gives birth to obedience. Let these words resonate in your mind. The person who has been cleansed from sin and continues in love also has freedom of speech with his master who rules the whole world. That's got to rest in your soul. Let me say it to you again. The person who has been cleansed from sin, that's done by God, and continues in love. And how do we love God? What does Jesus say? If you love me, you obey my commands. So the person who's been cleansed from sin by God and then empowered by the Holy Spirit continues in love also has freedom of speech with his master who rules the whole world, and I would say the whole universe. But I think we can all understand what's happening here. When you're driving and you see that state trooper car on the side of Northern or Southern State Parkway, or you see them behind you, how many of you get a little nervous? All of us? Amen? Why? I expect I'm going to get a ticket. Do you know why I'm going to expect to get a ticket? Because I almost break the law every time I get in my car. I speed. I think I ran a stoplight yesterday. I'm not sure. I didn't look after I saw it change yellow. I just went faster. I'm sure there's something wrong with my vehicle that warrants a ticket. I anticipate punishment because I've broken the law. But brothers and sisters, when Christ appears... Our obedience, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will give us confidence to stand in His presence and not shrink back in fear or assume that we will be punished. You understand this incredible truth? All the punishment, all the wrath that was meant for us because we are guilty was poured out on Jesus Christ upon the cross. There is no more wrath. There is no punishment. There is no shame for those who are in Jesus Christ. And our continued obedience, our perseverance in the faith, combined with the power of the Spirit in us, allowing us to be obedient, will give us a, a confidence to stand in His presence. Our obedience is a sign that God has saved us. Our obedience doesn't earn the favor of God, but it proves that the blood of Christ covers us and the Holy Spirit empowers us to obey the Word of God.
And so when Christ returns, even though we are sinners, we know that it's been forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We don't have to fear the return of Christ. Our obedience. All right, I'm going to get on a hobby horse for a minute, okay? You guys are used to this now, by now. I want to hit both sides of this. There is no such thing as a non-practicing Christian. It doesn't exist. I have had more conversations around Easter with people who say they believe, but they don't practice. That text says this is impossible. If you know God, if you know His righteousness, you will in love be obedient to Him. But at the same time, brothers and sisters, as quickly as I say there is no such thing as a non-practicing Christian, those who are striving to be obedient, this passage should breathe life and health into you, knowing that if you're striving to be like Jesus Christ, you, in fact, are a child of God. And this text says so. Obedience born out of sonship to God is what gives us our confidence. You have, as a child of God, been fathered by Him. So obedience is our first level of confidence. The second is our sonship, our daughtership in God. God the Father fathered you through the blood of Jesus Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit to be His child. We've heard this over and over again in the New Testament. John reminds us in this conversation with Nicodemus. Remember in John 3, 3 through 7? Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He doesn't let people into his kingdom that aren't his children. Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is the Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And this is not talking about progressive sanctification, mind you. Born is a fixed act in time. If you know Christ as your Savior, you are His child right now. But this idea of sonship and obedience is tied together because the, the child exhibits the parent's character because he shares in the parent's nature. This is why the Antichrists are exhibited are tied closely to the devil. Do you know why? Who's the father of the Antichrist? Come on, church, let's hear it. Who is the father of believers? Christ. That's why there are such stark categories that are painted. One is exhibiting the nature of their father. So when we see people who don't believe in Jesus Christ act as the devil, we can just go, yeah, just doing what the father imbued in them to do. But the same should be true when we see believers who worship God with their lives. We should just go, yeah, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. This is our nature. Our nature has been changed and imparted to us by our Father. Brothers and sisters, we've got to let verse 1 sink into our minds. You are a child of God according to chapter 3 verse 1. Verse 2 resounds that again as well. We are God's children. I, I don't know what your relationship was with, with your father growing up or even is still now, but I had the incredible privilege of having a father who was also my hero. He was the best at everything. Now, I don't actually know if he was or not, but in my mind, he was the best at everything. And the things that he wasn't good at I, in love, just dismissed as like being not important. 
Like, I don't think he's good at laundry or cooking things, but in my mind, that didn't matter. Except when I got hungry, my clothes were dirty. But right, this is why mothers and fathers go together. Not only was he my hero, but any time that I ever got in trouble, and this is true still to this day, he's the first one there to help. He's typically the first one that I call when I have problems. Why? Because I know that he loves me. I know that he's my father. And an infinite value above that, God is the father of every believer. This is so deep in the Christian DNA that it should change even the very way that we pray. Remember Jesus' prayer when he teaches them to pray in Matthew 6, 6 through 9? How does he start that prayer? Not, hey, God, cosmic being in the sky. Hey, angry deity far and distance from me. How does that prayer start? Our Father. When you pray, you're not talking to some distant deity. You're talking to the God that gave you spiritual life and loves you as your Father. Again, let this truth resonate in your mind. As children of God, we have, been, uh, we have been legally adopted by him. We have been made his children legally by adoption, but also ethically by the new birth. He legally adopted us, but then ethically imbued his nature to us by the new birth. He imparts to us a type of spiritual DNA when the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. John has this thought beginning way back in the beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. He says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's another way in which our earthly fathers are separated from our heavenly father. My dad didn't choose me. He didn't pick me as his son. He was the son, I am the son that my father was given through birth. But God, before the foundation of the world, picked every one of his children. He picked you, and he loves you. And if you are born again, you should hold tightly to this truth that you are a child of God. Now, I said that there were two possible responses to the return of Christ. One is this one of the believer that's confidence, born on obedience and, and sonship. But the second, in the return of Christ, is the response of fear. And this fear, according to this text, is born out of shrinking in shame. Their fear is born out of shame, which means to be ashamed. This is actually the second way in these recent verses that we can tell if someone is against Christ or for Christ. Remember, we learned that one of the first ways to know who falls in the Antichrist camp is those who deny Jesus. They deny that He is the Son of God. But according to this text, those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, those who are Antichrist, not only deny Jesus for who He is, but they don't practice righteousness. Think Pharisees and Sadducees. They know the law, but they don't do the law. Brothers and sisters, that is still happening around us all over the place. You can turn on your television right now and see any number of people who claim to know Jesus Christ, but their life is not marked by righteousness. What does this text say? Why do they not practice righteousness? This text tells us they don't practice it in part because they don't know Him. 
This world acts like we're strangers in this world because they don't know us because they didn't know him. Now, you might be tempted to, to think, but Pastor, God has revealed himself in the created order. There's at least two attributes of his character that are revealed to everyone. And you've heard me say multiple times, everyone knows about God. What is this idea of knowing here? How is it that they don't know him? Let me suggest to you that this idea of not knowing him is actually a willful rejection of his existence. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, shows the beginning of the rejection of God. And Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, talks about the, the extent of this rejection, this suppression of the truth that happens. But one of my favorite verses on this particular topic is Isaiah 48, verse 8. It says, You have never heard, you have never known, for from old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. Those who will be afraid, who will have fear, who have shame at the coming of Jesus Christ will have it in part because they have rejected God and His Word. Friend, if you're here today or you're listening online and this is you today, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you're floating along in life and you think everything is going swimmingly well, let me tell you there is a day coming in which you will have to face God. And when you do, there is no amount of wealth that you can accumulate. There is no amount of status that you can have. There isn't a number of things that you can own that will make God pleased with you. The only thing, the only thing that can save you from the wrath of God is the blood of Jesus Christ. We have to admit that we're sinners, that we're at odds with God, that we've not been obedient to his commands, and ask him to forgive us. And when he does, you too, like us who know Jesus Christ, move from enemy of God to child of God and all the benefits that go along with that. And so let me encourage you today, if you're in that category of a person who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and God as their Father, today can be the day of repentance. Today is the day that you can turn and be given the privilege of knowing the love of God that makes us His children. But I, I want to suggest to you also from this particular text that there are a few reasons from this text that we should be motivated by the return of Christ. Let me just suggest to you that eschatology is motivational. The study of last things motivates the believers. That's what eschatology means, the study of last things. And according to this text, there's a question that, that's posed here in verse 29, and this is meant to cause us to, to pause. It's not a question in English, but here it's meant to, to make us pause for a moment in verse 29. It says, if you know that He is righteous… Brothers and sisters, do you, do you know the righteousness of God? Do you know that He is righteous? Here, here's the reason I'm wording this this way. What I'm afraid of is that many of us are just going by with life. Do you ever feel like this, like every day is exactly the same? You eat the same things, you sleep in the same bed, you get up, you do the same job, you do the same things over and over again, you eat the same things. Did you know that uh, in their life that most Americans especially eat the same seven to nine things over and over and over again? We're, we're in some sense creatures of habit, which can be a good thing, but can also be a very bad thing if our habits don't include meditation and contemplation of God and His Word. If I'm not constantly reminding myself of the righteousness of God, the tendency to drift towards sinfulness will be higher. We must stop to consider the extreme nature of the righteousness of God. Let's think about a few passages in terms of considering the righteousness of God. 
Psalm 119, verse 137 says this, Righteous are you, and then it's O Lord in, in all caps, meaning they're using the highest form of the word of Lord that's available in their language. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. We as parents know, kids, I'm going to tell you a secret. Are you kids listening? Do you want to hear a secret? Sometimes parents' rules are wrong. Did you know that? No, Julia's shaking her head at me. Don't say that, Pastor. But sometimes we're wrong. Not very often, though. I've been wrong like once in my life, right? Like yesterday at the dinner table, two of my children wanted to finish their dinner with the tongs, the serving tongs. Yeah, it's weird, whatever. It was fun. Yes, Nora. It ended up being hilarious. But as soon as they picked up the tongs and started to eat the food off of their plate, you know what I started to do? I started to rebuke them and give them a rule that I decided was a silly rule. Why can't they eat their food with tongs? Why do I care? Now, at a restaurant, that's a different deal, right? Or if we're at your house for dinner, we we shouldn't do that. But I was going to impose a rule on my kids that was kind of a silly rule. And I didn't actually have any foundation for saying that that rule was wrong. God has never done that. God's never been wrong. Even the rules that he sets are perfectly right. He's never had to go back to his children and go, what daddy said wasn't right. He's never had to do that. Listen to this. Daniel chapter 9, verse 14. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous, get this, in all the works that he has done. Not only are all of God's rules right and righteous, He has never done anything that isn't righteous. Now, you've heard me confess multiple times, I've been tempted to not be righteous even this morning. Maybe I'm the only one, maybe that shocks you. But I had to drive seven minutes from here to the church, and I was tempted to not be righteous at least six times in those seven miles. but God's never done that. Everything he does, all the works of the Lord are righteous. Everything. And if we know that he is righteous, we must also know that he is just. And if we know that he is just, we know that he will return in judgment. And so his righteousness motivates us to live in light of the future judgment that is coming. And that obedience is what we talked about earlier that gives us the confidence to stand in front of Christ. But the fact that a God who is righteous, who's never made a a rule that's not righteous or done anything that's not righteous, loves us so much that he made us our children, him made us his children, why would I not want to respond in righteousness to that great love? This is point number two. Once you've experienced the love of God, you can't help but respond in love to him. It says, see, in verse 1 of chapter 3, see, contemplate, think about the great love, what kind of love the Father has given to us. What kind of love has the Father given to us that took us his enemies and made us his children? This is a love that is almost unfathomable to us, but has been given to us to make us his children. This is astonishing. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still what, church? You were a sinner, and Christ went to the cross knowing all the sins that you would commit, and yet still loved you enough to die for you. And this love 
was just given to us. It was lavished upon us as an unearned gift, and it's permanent in its giving. And as I'm overwhelmed with the great nature of the love of God, I want nothing more than to love Him in return. And the gift He has given us fosters a love in us that desires nothing else but to love Him with our entire lives. Again, in anticipation of an even more full sense of love that we're going to experience in eternity. Because the day is coming. The day is coming according to this text that we will see Him face to face. Can you... Can you feel the anticipation of seeing Christ face to face? This one that is perfectly righteous and loves us so much that he saved us from eternity in hell. I want to see him face to face. Antichrists, those have already started to be revealed. And big A Antichrist will be revealed one day. But one day Christ will also be revealed. Do you know what this text says? I've got an idea in my head of what that's going to be like. Have you ever thought about it? What it'll be like to see Christ face to face? There's lots of pictures that people have, have drawn about what they think Jesus looks like. I don't think I've seen a single one in terms of what Jesus is going to look like. And I, I wonder if I'll be able to even look him in the face when we see him face to face. But this text says we'll be able to. We will see him face to face as he is. We'll get to see him in his fullness clearly and directly. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 talks about this. It gives us a great picture to think about it. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. I was thinking about this this morning as I was getting ready. I think what he's talking about here in some sense, uh, in our bathroom we have two lights. There's the one that's in the fan that you're supposed to turn on every time you go in there before you take a shower so the mirror doesn't get steamed up. And I always forget to turn that one on. I turn the one on that's over the sink, and so when I get out of the shower, everything in the bathroom's fogged over. And I've started doing that on purpose because now a foggy mirror is about the only way I really want to see my face. Amen? And I can also lie to myself and think that, you know, I look great every morning. But God's revealed us himself to us in his word. But what can be known about God could never be fully contained in a book. We know that God has revealed to us a good portion of what He wants us to know. It's exactly what we need to know about Him, in fact. But one day we'll see Him face to face, and our knowledge about Him will increase leaps and bounds. Uh, I also think about this. Here's another analogy, uh, which I don't understand, and I'm going to sound old again. I think about this like internet dating, where you talk to someone over the computer, but it's a long distance. Am I sounding old just by saying computer? There's like dating sites that you meet people on, and then you talk over the internet, I think is how it works. I've never done it. But there's this intimacy that you can't have through a computer. At least I don't think you can. You need to be face-to-face with someone to know them fully. When Kim and I were dating, I'm not even sure, did the internet exist back then, babe? I think it did, but I didn't know how to use it. Uh, And the place, there was a a time during this, well, you know, you were like 12 at the time or whatever it was. Uh, But we, we were long distance from each other. I lived in New Mexico, she lived in Ohio. I'm really bad at writing letters. Do you guys remember the mail? I still don't know how to use the mail, all right? I know it exists, but I don't use it. And the telephone that we had to use was on a telephone pole, like up in the air. I was like way out in the country. And there was this tension that I had that whole time wanting to be face-to-face with the one I loved. 
And we would talk on the phone, and we got to know each other a little bit better. And, but it was so exciting for me to get on a plane and fly to Cincinnati, Ohio, and see the one that I loved face to face. I can only imagine what it's going to be like to be able to get to know Jesus Christ face to face. In some sense, it will be a fullness of knowledge. Now, here's the last part of this particular section that I think is almost the most fun to complicate or to contemplate. This particular text says that when we see Christ face to face, His presence will actually change us. Look at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. I know that when I see my wife after a long day of work, my countenance changes. My frown oftentimes turns into a smile. But this particular text tells us that what we're going to be hasn't even appeared yet. No one has seen what we're going to be in some full sense. And I've had to ask the question, what will it be like to be like Jesus? And I think there's two ways to think about this. I don't think Jesus, in the same way that we do at this point, experiences pain and sadness. Can you imagine this? When we see Jesus face to face, your pain will be completely gone. And you won't experience sadness or sorrow anymore. Can you imagine what it will be like to not hurt or suffer anymore? Um, I, I, I know that I complain about being old sometimes, and you guys laugh because I'm still in my 40s, and you're like, oh, wait, you little child. But I, I've entered into the era of knowing when it's going to rain by the way my knees feel. Anyone else have that? Or my right hip. Sometimes it's that. I think, like, the older you get, it moves from knees to hip. Is that true? But I won't have that happen anymore. Kids, something else that you need to know, when you get older, you can actually get hurt getting out of bed. You can also injure yourself if you're seated in a chair and you try to turn around and reach behind you too quickly. But in heaven, that's when we see Jesus face to face, that's not going to happen to us anymore. But here's the, maybe the greatest thing of all. The greatest thing of all is that our struggle with sin will be over. Can you imagine what it's going to be like for sin to not even be an option? If you've ever felt the sting of a sinful word that you've spoken or an action that you did that, that hurt someone and even hurt yourself, that won't even be on the table when we see Jesus face to face. I can't even imagine it. Temptation to sin will be gone because we will be like him. The effects of his presence upon us will change us. Here, here's what will happen. Again, here's a, a key statement you can hang on to. What will happen is our likeness will be redeemed and perfected by God as the likeness of the creature reflecting the glory of the Father. For the first time, we will perfectly reflect the nature of our Father as His children. And now that we understand these truths about Christ, how are we supposed to respond now? What are we supposed to do according to this text? How are we to live in response to the truth of Christ's return? First and foremost, as I've already stated, but let me state it again, put your hope, put your confidence in Him. 
And let His second coming be the motivator for the reason that you live the way that you do now. Know that there is no point in your life, if you have Jesus Christ, that you don't have hope. This text says, everyone who thus hopes, meaning the one having hope, that is it. That is who we are, brothers and sisters. This is one of the greatest things that we bring to this lost and dying world is hope. No one has it like we have it. And hope is not just this sense of like, well, I hope it's going to happen, but it's a complete and total confidence in who Christ is. It's an expectation that believers will share fully in God's eternal life. Complete and total confidence as if we just expect that it's going to happen and then we live as if it's going to happen because it is going to happen. You see, the hope of appearing before God's presence and of seeing Christ as He is necessarily inspires its recipients with the desire of putting away every defilement that curbs the vision of God. Because when we continue in sin and we start to love sin and we start to make sin our priority, who God is gets very hazy in our minds. But when we see God in His righteous, loving nature, we put aside sin and we put our hope in Him. This is the last part of what John has to say for us today. The way that we respond to the truth of the return of Christ, His love and His righteousness, is that we practice righteousness by purifying ourselves. The the result of abiding in God and being His child is that we live His nature. We live Pure, holy lives, freedom, free from impurity. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Let me just say this to you. Wherever you are lacking motivation in your Christian walk, do not let the days pass by without you in the power of the Spirit, taking steps to be motivated to make changes for God's glory to do His will. Do not die with regrets about your Christian life. Do not die with any regrets when it comes to living your life out of love for God. Now, if you understand what John is talking about here, you you might have at least one question. Because the the push here is to live a perfect, pure, and holy life. Now, let me ask you, have you lived one entire day sinless? Have you? I have not. I don't think anyone here has. I think there's only one person that has. Jesus Christ. We may have had days where we got really close. And and John is pushing us here to strive for that perfect day. But you would say, Pastor, that's impossible. It's impossible to live a sinless, perfect day. God, you know about these kids that you gave me. It's kind of your fault. You know about my job that you put me in. Brothers and sisters, we have to see the love of God and the righteousness of God and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit as enough to strive despite our circumstances. But let me say it to you this way. If we're asking why even try if sinless perfection isn't possible, here's the answer. Sinless perfection is the aim. You know about the the northern star? Forever. It's been the guiding light for sailors and travelers. No one has ever reached the northern star by sailing towards it or walking towards it or driving towards it. No one's ever reached it. 
But the northern star is the guiding light to make sure that you're headed in the right direction. If the aim is sinless perfection, that is our northern star. That is how we make sure that we are headed in the right direction to honor the Lord. And we're not going to reach it in this life, but that's okay, because we're headed in the right direction. So, brothers and sisters, if you've experienced the love of God and you know that He is righteous, the journey in the direction of our northern star, our pure, righteous living, needs to be our goal today and every day. But friend, let me plead with you again. Everyone is is headed one of two directions. We're either headed towards heaven or we're headed towards hell. And the only way that you can guarantee that you're headed in the right direction is first and foremost, seeing the righteousness of God, experiencing His love, and turning to Him in salvation. Won't you do that today? But brothers and sisters, a pure and righteous life has always been necessary for the believer. But in the culture today, this is the way in which we stand out above all else to be salt and light to a lost and dying world. If you are person who is pursuing righteousness and purity in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in many of our families, wherever you go, you are going to stand out. And when you do, that is your opportunity to declare where that righteousness and purity comes from. So let's ask the Lord to strengthen us to to live pure and righteous for Him today. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that we have been given the privilege of being called your children. Never allow this truth to become cold and dead in our hearts, but instead allow us to be motivated by you as our Father who gives to us his love and empowers us through through your Spirit so that we can pursue this purity, this righteousness that you've called us to. Help us abide in you today. Help us, Lord, to strive looking forward to the day in which you will return. Lord, we're ready. For many of us, we look at this world and we wonder, is there hope? And although there may not be hope for the culture around us, there is hope for the believer in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to strive to make your love and hope known to everyone around us so that you might continue to draw to yourself the children that that you have called. Lord, if there is anyone today who is battling sin, who is tempted to sin, that claims to know you as their Savior, Lord, help them to be renewed in the fight against sin. Help them to see your righteousness and strive for that righteousness with a renewed passion and vigor as a result of seeing you for who you are. Help us today to continue to move forward until you return. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.